0: Welcome to this month's science fiction double feature. I'm your host, Liz Lutzendorf. This week, it's all about the North versus the South, with Omar el Akkad and his debut novel, American War. Then we get to find out what it was like for women in the actual American Civil War with historian Elizabeth Leonard. After a month off, what better way to get back into things than with two conversations about war? Omar Al-Aqad is a journalist and new novelist who was born in Egypt, grew up in Qatar, and eventually emigrated to Canada. His first novel, American War, takes place not too long in the future, after a second civil war divides the United States once again. It's an amazing, compelling, but ultimately heartrending read, which makes you want to reach through the pages and change the fortunes and choices that the main character makes. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Here's Omar to tell us about the main character and plot of American War.
1: American War is a fictional retelling of the um, Second American Civil War, which takes place about 50 or 60 years from now. The America and the world of 2075 is um, very different from today in the sense that climate change has sort of destroyed the coastlines. So in the United States, the entire eastern seaboard is gone. Um, New York is underwater. Washington, D.C. is no longer the capital. There's been an entire sort of inland exodus of people, 100 million people moving from the coasts to the middle of the country. And long after it would do any good at all, the federal government decides to impose a prohibition on fossil fuel use as a way to sort of combat climate change. And even though by this point in time, most of the world has moved on to other sources of fuel, uh, a number of southern states decide that they would rather secede from the union and go along with this, and what results is a uh, is a second civil war, um, which is pretty quickly and sort of handily won by by the north. But then there's a sort of insurgency that that carries on for years and years and years. Uh, the story follows uh, the Chestnut family, who live in southernmost Louisiana, uh, specifically Surratt Chestnut, the daughter in the family. Uh, and it follows her life as, as she's sort of impacted by war and becomes a refugee and eventually sort of becomes a weapon. So it's it's mostly the story of her life and, and the story of how war changes her.
0: This is your first novel, uh, or at least your first published novel. Uh, where did the idea come from? A lot of it had to
1: do with the sense of trying to take these things that have happened in the world very far away from this part of the world and, and recast them as elements of something very near to home. Um, one of the things that happens when you publish a novel is, is you get the luxury of inventing uh, very neat origin stories. Um, but of course, novels are, are very messy things and, and they never come about so cleanly. But the closest thing I can, I can think of to a sort of Genesis moment had to do with, um, I have this very vague recollection of watching an interview uh, I don't remember if it was on CNN or, or somewhere else, with a with a talking head, a uh, sort of a foreign affairs expert. And this interview took place in the wake of of protests in Afghanistan. Local villagers in Afghanistan were protesting against the U.S. military presence there. And the question that was put to this person was something to the extent of, you know, why do they hate us so much? Uh, and as part of his answer, this person noted that sometimes the U.S. military um, has to go conduct these nighttime raids in these villages where they'll go looking for insurgents. Uh, And as part of these raids, they'll sometimes, you know, tear the people's homes apart or hold the women and children at gunpoint. Uh, And then he helpfully added, and you know, in Afghan culture, this sort of thing is considered very offensive. And I thought, you know, maybe one culture on Earth that that wouldn't consider this sort of thing offensive— Uh, And so I started thinking about this idea of taking these conflicts that that have defined the world in my lifetime. uh, And these are conflicts in which U.S. involvement has either been indirect or from a great distance uh, and recasting them as elements of of something very direct and very close to home. And that's that's how the idea of a second civil war came to me.
0: Prior to this, uh, you were a journalist. Did any of that experience influence themes or uh, things that happen in the book?
1: yeah absolutely I mean there were things that were very direct influences. Um, I spent some time in Afghanistan covering the war. Uh, I spent time in in Guantanamo Bay covering the military trials uh, and in Egypt covering the Arab Spring and a lot of the visual language of those places uh, ends up in the novel in terms of of the setting and the scenery also just the research I did as a journalist on on a lot of on a lot of issues um, there's a chapter in the book which deals with um, uh, sort of an analog to, to you know, enhanced interrogation or whatever euphemism we're using for torture these days. Um, and that's based on, on on research I did as a journalist. You know, the, the beginning of the novel is set in, in southern Louisiana, which is now sort of uh, mostly underwater. And that's based on time I spent in southern Louisiana doing a story on land loss there. For people who haven't gone, southern Louisiana is, is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Uh, they also lose about a football field's worth of land every hour due to a combination of, of climate change, oil pipelines that are tearing up the land, the the intrusion of salt water. And so a lot of things I saw when I was on assignment um, sort of shaped my thinking about where to set this novel and and, and uh, a lot of the narrative arc as well.
0: And when did you start writing it? Because, well, I've just spent two weeks in, in the US uh, and the current political climate kind of Fed into the tension that I felt reading the book.
1: I started writing writing it in the summer of 2014, and I finished the first draft almost exactly a year later, so summer of 2015. There's been lots of rewrites, but nothing. None of the narrative arc has changed. So, so the the actual storyline um, has not changed in the final version from, from the version I wrote uh, in 2015. And a couple of weeks after I finished the first draft. Uh, Donald Trump announced he was he was running for president, uh, and ever since then, you know, I've watched as as this novel is sort of cast in the light of of the surreal experience of living in the United States these days. But I certainly never predicted any of this, and and I never set out trying to write a novel about the future or or try to predict where we are. And if anything, I mean, I don't think I could have gotten a novel published that accurately predicts where we are today. Um, This feels far more surreal than any fiction I've read in a long time. So no, it was never on the radar when I was writing.
0: There are so many things I enjoyed about the book and then was probably also immediately distressed by. But the one that stuck out for me was the inversion of the aid system. So we're kind of used to seeing tents uh, and aid distribution. Um, and also it was just the use of things like the Red Crescent rather than the Red Cross. Uh, and I felt it was a really compelling way to world build uh, in a world that you know we already know or really feel uh, comfortable with and understand. Uh, so how did you go from kind of striking this balance between what we know, and this future world.
1: I was listening a while back to um, a lecture series that, that Borges gave in, in Harvard about 50 or 60 years ago, and, and he was talking about the idea that all literature, in the end, is a set of tricks, uh, and no matter how how good you try to be at it or how much you couch it, eventually your tricks get discovered um, and I certainly don't belong to the ranks of anybody who was talking about that day, but but the central trick of the book is turnabout. You know, um, it wasn't it wasn't particularly difficult to take these things that have happened to people who are very far away and people who don't have much of a voice, and then sort of recast them as happening to people who have perhaps the loudest voice in the world. So, for example, there's a character in the book, a guy named Yusuf, who um, is a saboteur. He belongs to the rising empire in the Middle East, and he's interested in prolonging the the American sort of misery in the Civil War. That's basically just taking U.S. involvement in in the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and recasting it as something that was happening to America as opposed to happening by America. And and the same was true with the idea of what would happen if it was this part of the world that was in distress. You know, one of the things that happens in the book is that these you know, the the newly dominant empires are constantly sending aid to the United States because the United States is now sort of in decline. But two things are happening. One is that they're sending a lot of aid that's completely useless. They keep sending blankets um, to the South where it's, you know, 50 degrees and and nobody has any use for blankets at all. Uh, And the other thing is that they're getting things in return. You know, they're getting... Cheap electronics from from all of the electronics factories that have now popped up everywhere they're getting um, clothes from the sweatshops that have popped up everywhere and so you know as much as I'd like to take credit for for building this really creative and original world, essentially all I did was was take things that are happening and 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 recast them so that they were happening to different people
0: following Surrat' story was kind of immensely heart-wrenching uh, as you can see what's happening, kind of understand the the impact of the war uh, she does really reprehensible things and so I really enjoyed the moral complexity <laughs> and equally distressed by it did you always want to have such a challenging lead character to uh, wrap the narrative around?
1: Yeah, I, I get asked every once in a while whether I want people to, to sympathize with her And the answer is no, I I don't. By the end of the book, I don't want people to sympathize with her. I don't want them to apologize for her. I don't don't even really want them to like her. All I wanted was for them to understand how she got to the place where she ends up. And that was always the sort of central drive in in writing the book, was to create this character who at the beginning of the book is is this endlessly curious, trusting, um, loving human being and to show how these things that are done to her, you know, the injustices of war, the, the, the sort of injustices of living as uh, without agency, how they transform her, and how they transform her into somebody who, would, by the end of the book, is fundamentally evil. That to me is the central arc of the book. That's, that's the reason I started writing the book, where I didn't want a character people could sympathize with. I just wanted to show the work of, of that transition and that radicalization of, how somebody can become this way. Uh, so to me, more than anything, it's, it's you know, the story is Surratt's story. Uh,
0: the one thing that I noticed is, you know, in the current climate, we have like huge waves of evangelicalism and religion is sort of missing from it. Did you just not want it to kind of complicate the narrative?
1: Yeah, I, I get asked about things like that a lot because in a, in a sense, religion is not a huge aspect of, of what happens in the book. And neither is Surat's race and neither is Surat's sexuality, which are sort of presented, but not, you know, I, I don't spend time dealing with directly. And, and part of that has to do with, with the idea that everything in the book, in one form or another, lives as a kind of analogy. And so I didn't want to write a book about religious extremism. And that's, that's part of the reason why, why the religious aspect is not sort of front and center in the book. And a big part of that has to do with the idea of the sense that religion is the driving force for someone to become this kind of extremist, which i don't I don't fully believe in. You know I come from a part of the world I was born in the Middle East, and I lived I lived the first sixteen years of my life in the Middle East. And I come from a part of the world that is increasingly falling prey to to religious extremism. And so it's easy to look at that part of the world and say, "Well, clearly, this is a religious issue." But those things correlate to poverty and they correlate to a lack of economic opportunity, and they correlate to a whole host of things that are very easy to dismiss if you then say, well, this is plainly a religious issue. And so what I wanted to get at was the core of how somebody becomes extremist in their ideology rather than write a book about religious extremism. Um, I know that's a sort of unsatisfactory answer for why that why that aspect doesn't doesn't live in the book. But it, but for me, it had to do with tr- trying to talk about something that I think uh, is very easily overshadowed by just saying, well, this is a religion issue.
0: I picked up your novel as had already been on the so many must-read lists of 2017. <laughs> is it intimidating to have such buzz around your first novel? Oh,
1: absolutely. So when I was writing this book, I, I didn't have an agent and I didn't have a publisher and I didn't have any expectation that, that the book would ever see the light of day. I was writing it in my spare time while I was working as a journalist. I was writing mostly between the hours of midnight and, and five in the morning. And it was really only after I, I had a I had a bad day at work. I had one of those days where I felt like I wasn't doing the kind of work I wanted to do. And I got off a phone call with one of my senior editors and I thought, you know, to hell with this, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this thing out of cold storage and and uh, and see if I can if I can put it out into the world. By then I'd finished the novel. I'd finished the novel a few weeks earlier and I so all of this is to say that that I didn't know any of this would happen, and I still don't know how to handle it. I mean, I was, I was sitting at home one day, and, and somebody sent me a link, and it was a link to the New York Times review of the book. And if you told me a year or two earlier that I was ever going to any fiction I'd written would ever end up being reviewed in the New York Times, I wouldn't have believed you. It's been very surreal to go from essentially in the fiction world and nobody— to having this book show up on all of these most anticipated lists. The other dangerous thing about that is that it's somewhat alarming that, that a lot of the, the praise has to do with these most anticipated lists. A lot of the praise has to do with before people read it. Um, You know, I somewhat worry about whether it, you know, at the end of the year, it's going to end up on, on similar lists or not. But um, no, it's, it's, it's an incredible experience. And it's one, for which I'm deeply grateful and I'm still not entirely sure how to, how to handle it.
0: So yesterday, yesterday, bizarrely, we were driving through Gettysburg. (laughs) This is how odd my holiday was thinking of all these interview questions. It was like, would you ever write kind of a companion novel, but from the union side of the war, or I guess the blue side of the war.
1: (laughs) If there's, if you ever see a, um, any kind of sequel or prequel or companion to American war, please know that I have sold out completely and I'm doing it entirely for the money. (laughs) Um, no, I, I, I have no intention of, of revisiting that world. Uh, If I'm ever fortunate enough uh, to, to write a second novel or a third novel or to make this my career, which is what I hope to do. I don't, I don't want to go back to the same places. Um, and that's been one of the surreal experiences of of publishing this novel is that to an increasingly large number of people, this novel is who I am. Um, you know, it's that their, their experience of me is through this incredibly bleak, depressing book. You know, I've, I've for better or worse, I've I've said what I what I wanted to say in that book, uh, and I've made the argument I want to make, and so beyond that, you know. Obviously, when these things happen, you know, there's talk of, of selling movie rights or selling TV rights and that sort of thing. And it, one day it might end up in a different medium, um, but that'll be somebody else's art and that'll be theirs to make of it what they will. My intention is is to never to go back to that world or, or any other world that I that I create in fiction. Once it's done, it's out there and it's done.
0: And uh, a question I always ask, because uh, it's always interesting to hear what other people are reading, uh, are you a sci-fi fan? Uh, are you reading any science fiction or would you recommend any particular sci-fi books that you have enjoyed in the past?
1: You know, strangely enough, I recently discovered that I live in a part of the world where there's a lot of sci-fi and fantasy authors. I don't know what draws these folks to the woods of Oregon, but it's, it's strange how many people are, po- how many authors populate Oregon, um, who, who work in that genre. Uh, I recently finished *The Book of Joan* by uh, Lydia Yukinovich who is one of my favorite authors. I mean, just across the board, her, she's an amazing essayist. She wrote an essay called *Woven*, that's one of my favorite essays in any genre. And *The Book of Joan* is is a, is a strange book because it's this amazing piece of science fiction, but it's also just this incredibly sort of lyrical and deeply felt novel. You know, she I I went to see her at Powell's, which is the big bookstore in Portland, and she was talking about how she constantly gets described as a lyrical because she's a failed poet who went on to write to write novels. But um but she she's she's not given herself enough credit. It's it's amazing. Beyond that, I, I I read Born by Jeff Vandermeer, which is also another excellent book. He was also in town recently. Beyond that, I I, I tend to uh to not read in any one specific genre. The last book I read that really that really destroyed me is called
2: Whereas,
1: and it's by uh, Lely Long Soldier, who's a poet. It's a collection of poetry. Uh, she's she's a, uh, a poet and, a, and a, a citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation. Uh, and she wrote this, this response, essentially, this poetic response to um, a government resolution saying that the treatment of Native Americans was very bad and we're very sorry about all that. And it's this incredibly creative, fierce, powerful work that got very little attention and it and it shouldn't have it should have gotten a lot more than it did
0: so now from a fictional civil war to the actual american civil war elizabeth leonard is the john J. and cornelia v gibson professor of history at colby college a liberal arts college in maine specializing in the U.S. Civil War and the experience of women in the United States, she was the perfect person to talk to about the experience of women during the Civil War. If you ever wanted to know if women fought for the North or the South, you are in for a treat. But first, let's see what pre-Civil War was like for women across the United States.
2: Yeah, well, it's impossible to answer a question like, what was life like for women before the Civil War with a simple answer because of course it really depended on what your social position was and where you lived and, and so on. So if you're talking about, you know, African American women, of course, for the vast majority of them, their life was a life of slavery in which sexual assault was the defining feature, as more than one historian has said, of of their experience. If you're talking about plantation mistresses who weren't very numerous, but certainly were part of a very powerful social structure in, in the South, then their lives were rather Calm and uh, pristine and very much supported by the slaves that did all of the labor uh, on their land and in their homes, although they did complain bitterly about how dreadful their lives were having to manage these uncouth people who didn't, you know, understand how to be human. Uh, if you were a middle-class woman in Boston you or in New York, you might have been busily gathering your patterns from Godey's Ladies' Book and, you know, having lovely clothes made for yourself, while also maybe occasionally going out to a women's rights convention and starting to think about maybe changing divorce and property laws so that things your life would be better <laughs> you know if you were a working class uh, woman in uh, a northern city you probably were working in a factory or doing piecework uh, you know in the garment industry by candlelight and you know could be recognized on the street because you were hunched over from many, many hours of working in the dark on your sewing. I mean, it just obviously depended greatly on on who you were.
0: I'm doing a PhD in kind of 20th century British history. And, and this is, yeah, about the same time where they're talking about kind of liberal, liberalization of divorce law, the Married Women's Property Act happened and things like that. So with, I guess that the relation to common law meant that a lot of the same issues were prevalent in the states that they wanted to change?
2: Right, absolutely. I mean, that's the place where women's rights activism began. And I think it's interesting when I teach my women's history classes, of course, you know, the first thing students, or sometimes the only thing students know about women's activism in the past is about the suffrage movement. And I have to tell them that was sort of the least of their concerns, (laughs) you know, when when women's rights first started. I mean, for some people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton in the 1840s, that was a, she was already thinking about the need for women to have the right to vote. But a lot of women were just thinking about divorce and property law, you know, and, but of course, understanding that suffrage was tied to independence and having your own property and the freedom to, you know, uh, be an independent person and, and so on. But they wanted to start at the bottom, which was really being able to get out of abusive relationships and being able to have possession of their own property and, and so on. So very similar kinds of things. And that's where the laws begin to change, of course. The suffrage comes much later than property law
0: changes obviously probably not in the South to a great deal, but in the North, did women, uh, did white women and black women see any common cause in any of these, or were they kind of distinct uh, spheres of activism?
2: Certainly, Southern women, Southern white women, were very uninterested in, in um, I guess, a lot of women's rights activism. Up until the early 20th century, including on suffrage, uh, they were, before the war, they were, you know, either living in grinding poverty in rural areas and, you know, busily trying to just feed their families, or they were wealthy women who benefited so much from patriarchy and slavery that they, you know, suffrage didn't seem like, or even women's property rights didn't seem very meaningful uh to them. In the North, and, and most black women, of course, were slaves, and very few lived in the North until the 1910s so you 're mostly talking about um Southern women when you 're talking about black women, although there were free black women in the north in in some numbers, and they to some extent were um, i guess after the Civil War interested in in property law and and suffrage but for them also the issues of racism and lynching and you know oh. sheer survival were much more significant there was some you know, concern about suffrage, especially again as you get into the 20th century, but, but really not so much in the late 19th century. They're, they're even, they're much more concerned about racial uplift and economics and, and things like that as a race as opposed to anything having to do with just women, right? They want, they want their men actually in many cases, both freed black women from the South and Northern women who had been free all their lives are just thinking much more in a much more focused way about their men being treated like men. They want their men to have the opportunity to be patriarchs, which is kind of ironic, you know, and they want the privilege to stay home and be domestic (laughs) as opposed to being able to go out, you know, so I often tell my students when we talk even about liberation, you have to think how much it, it means something so different to different groups of women over time, and well, you know, you get to a point where middle class and elite women are saying, I want to get out in the workforce. They're going to do that on the backs of other women who are going to say, what I'd really like to do is be able to stay home with my children and not be in grinding poverty cleaning your toilet.
0: Leading up to the Civil War, there's lots of rhetoric by, you know, the politicians, especially in the South. Do we know what women thought of the kind of rhetoric going on about the Civil War and secession? Well, I think
2: that they they were very much in sync with whatever men said, you know, in their class position. So so I don't think that you find many, if any, planter class women resisting the idea of secession. They're very much wrapped up in the language that the male planter class is, you know, is using. And I think for, again... Farm women, working class women in the South, that's, they, they are just sort of thinking, well, what difference does it make to us? What happens, you know? But then when their husbands go off to fight, you know, they end up being very much supportive of the war until the war. I mean, there there is an argument that Drew Faust uh, made back in the 1980s, a great Southern historian who's now president of Harvard University. But she wrote this very influential article, I think, in the late 1980s or early 1990s that basically said, you know, Southern white women were very supportive of the war until the South clearly started losing. And slavery looked like it was going to die, which, you know, they had sacrifice so much for and patriarchy which had you know the exchange in patriarchy is you you're devoted you're dependent you give you you serve the patriarch and the patriarch protects you right that's the exchange <laughs> but if the patriarch isn't protecting you patriarchy is not working either and that at the point where women's sacrifices for the old south and slavery seem to be not working, right? They're being asked to sacrifice too much for too little gain. They turn on the war, and and Drew Faust sort of argued that's when uh, things really start going badly for the South. Or it, it certainly amplifies the crisis in the South, that women have started to turn their backs on the cause. Um, although you'd never know that from what happens after the war, when the lost cause of the Confederacy becomes this, this special treasure of Confederacy. Confederate women. I mean, they're the worst memorialists of the, the war, or the best, depending on how you look at it. I mean, they're the ones who really adhere to that lost cause vision, because they've lost so much, and they have to find a way to explain it and justify it.
0: So when we get to the war, uh, and imagine both uh, North and South play different roles, in in terms of, you know, men going off to fight in the war... Did it have the same effect on labor as kind of World War I, where a lot more women had to get involved in, you know, either factories or farming?
2: There's not as much, obviously, there aren't as many factories. You know, it's not like a factory system, but women do have to step into roles that they had not filled before white women, of course. Black women just continue to labor on, and working-class women continue to labor on. Uh, but wealthier women women of higher social class do find themselves having to take over responsibilities in their homes on their farms uh in their family businesses and so on that they and in terms of that just the household and the children and the managing the servants and and so on if you had them that that they hadn't had before so in that sense it is transformative and sometimes it's very difficult when men then come home to and that's resonates with World War Two, also. You know, the men come home and it's like, well, I learned how to function without you telling me what to do, you know, and now I don't know how to adjust to you thinking you're supposed to come back and tell me what to what to do again. One, not exactly industry, but area of work where we do in the North see women um, getting... Involved where they weren't before is in a lot of clerical work. And particularly, there's a whole expansion of the federal government under Abraham Lincoln, and there's a lot of clerical jobs, particularly in the telegraph office. Uh, I know that's one place where women start working where they hadn't been before, and that's probably the predecessor of women being telephone operators. You know, later on, they start as telegraphers, and then they become telephone operators later on. So um, after the war, women in the South find that they go a lot more into school teaching when they have to start supporting their families because so many men in the South were, were killed, uh, but not so much during the war. They do go into things like nursing, of course, and other kinds of war-related activities.
0: You mentioned nurses, but uh, with the war being fought across many areas, uh, did they did they form any kind of other logistical support, or did they have any other functions in the army or anything like that either?
2: Um, certainly, they did. I mean, there, nurses was a, a huge category, and some women were involved in nursing through these official channels, like the sanitary commissions and. Um, others just sort of well most of the war was fought in the south so they just wherever the war came they you know rolled up their sleeves and provided nursing service and they followed the hospitals or they went to the hospitals that were built over the course of the war and did that so that thousands and thousands and thousands of women were involved in nursing both in the north and south but they also got in both the north and the south very much involved in in what in the north was called ladies aid which was sort of material support for the soldiers providing the, because, of course, we had no standing army to speak of at the time the war began. At the time the war began, there were 16,000 soldiers in the United States. And by the time the war ended, three and a half million had served in, as soldiers in the war. So where were you gonna get the food, the supplies, the uniforms, the Bibles, the the stationery, the you know, the bedding and all the stuff, the sure everything that they would need. Well women were the ones who really stepped into that uh breach immediately, both in the north and south, putting their church circles, their sewing circles, their coffee group you know, whatever group their literary groups to to uh turning them into sources of material support, which later on in the war got um streamlined and umbrella organizations were formed, and so on. But early on, you know, that was a way that women responded in the North and South very quickly to provide this material support, because there was no war industry. I mean, they're just, like nowadays, we never think about where our soldiers' uniforms come from. They just, you know, they're just there. But they had to think about all of that stuff. How are we going to feed them? How are we going to supply them? How are we going to, you know, get them the medicines they need? And and so on, so they do a lot of that, and then of course, they did go with the armies in various capacities there you know as women, they went uh as support staff. We often think of the military as only recently being uh at least in this country recently becoming co-ed um but now that's wasn't true of the nineteenth century I mean women were always there as matrons, as nurses, as cooks, as laundresses, you know, in various other capacities they were Uh, part of these military forces, not in huge numbers, but they were there. And then, of course, there were the women who cut their hair off and put on uniforms and changed their names and soldiered up, you know, in disguise. So those are interesting women, too.
0: (laughs) That was my next question, actually. uh, Did any, uh, clearly some did fight in the Civil War.
2: Oh, yeah, they, for a long time, there. this number circulated because one woman, wrote a book at the end of the 19th century in which she estimated that there were probably about 400 women who did this in the course of the war, um, went undercover as male soldiers. Uh, But So for a long time, that number just got repeated and repeated and repeated, but in more recent years, uh, archivists at the National Archives and other scholars have estimated it's probably at least twice that many, because they can look through all of the service records of the soldiers, and they can see that there are accounts, of, you know, a soldier's service record would say from month to month where that soldier was, whether he was sick, whether he was on duty, uh, which regiment he was in, and, and, you know, looking through these millions and millions and millions of service record cards, you can see, oh, so-and-so was discovered to be a woman today, and she was discharged. You know, <laughs> So they've been able to estimate and, and find the stories of probably about f- somewhere between 500 and 1,000 women, as opposed to just 400. Not a militarily significant number, but a historically significant number.
0: So they were just discharged. They're like, you shouldn't have been fighting. If they were discovered,
2: yeah. And then often they would just go to a different town and re-enlist. <laughs> Because they weren't, I mean, they. I mean, some of them went because they had loved ones who went um, and they wanted to be with those loved ones, but very often they went for the same reasons that men went, you know, to be part of the action, to do a patriotic service, to have a regular job that paid better than anything they could do, to be independent. You know, they had all kinds of reasons why, and even women who went in because they had loved ones in the... Military, when their loved ones were killed, often would just re-enlist and, and go again and are famous stories. After the war, many years after the war, pensions became available. Uh, well, actually, the pensions started to become available during the war. But, but women started to apply for pensions who had served as soldiers, and we have some amazing pension records in the National Archives of women who you know, had to identify, had to explain their stories and prove that they had served under a particular man's name so that they could get their pensions. And so we have these wonderful records in the National Archives of these women's experiences.
0: Oh, wow.
2: I had no idea. Oh, they're so fun to see. Yeah, they're so fun to see. I have a book, I don't know if you, but if you see my book, All the Daring of the Soldier, it talks about a couple of these uh, women in particular, that including one who remained undercover until she was in her 60s (laughs) all the way into the 20th century she just lived as a man until she was hospitalized she broke her leg and she was hospitalized and it was then that she was discovered (laughs) oh wow and she had been getting a pension as a male soldier as a male veteran and it sort of threw the pension bureau into crisis because they're like, is this a fraud case? Did she have a brother? Is this really the same person? Should we get her pay back? You know, her pension back? Should we demand it back? And, uh, they decided no. It really was the, the, she really had fought in this regiment and then she'd, um, just decided to live on as a, as a man. She never married. She never seems to have had a romantic relationship with anybody, but she liked that identity probably gave her a lot more freedom than she would have had as a woman.
0: Did they fight on both sides for the North and the South?
2: Yes, both sides, for sure. We know of women on both sides who did it. Probably more in the North. It tended to be something that was more... um, Yeah, I think there were more women, at least more women we know of, who served in Northern regiments, but there were women in Southern regiments, too. Often, I mean, they weren't elite women, generally. You know, they were women from working-class backgrounds, sometimes immigrants. One of the best known, uh, well, the the woman I just mentioned, I believe her, she was an Irish immigrant. Uh, Another woman that we know a lot about was from from Canada. And they were just, you know, farm women who were already strong and fit and used to being outside. And, um, you know, wouldn't, that transition wouldn't be hard where it might have been harder for someone who'd spent all her life as a, you know, middle-class wife in Boston.
0: For people, I imagine this is probably more in the South, um, and especially areas that kind of were overrun by battles or anything. How disruptive was that? Did they have to leave and then come back?
2: Oh, often, yes. I mean, there was a lot of huge refugee crisis for um, white women who and, and some who just, you know, if they had slaves, they might just abandon their slaves if they saw the Union Army coming. But there were a lot of people who had to you know, felt they had to move out of the way, was very destructive, of course. I mean, the destructive path of the Union Army was significant and, you know, ruined people's property. And uh, and so And initially, the Union Army wanted very much to not damage property if possible and maintain discrete boundaries between the battlefield and the home front. But when it became clear that that was just encouraging or allowing this, confederacy to carry on longer you know uh it it you know those boundaries fell um and and so people's homes were destroyed it was very very disruptive and of course very disruptive to the way of life that people had become um familiar with particularly slave owners one of the things i find interesting is is sort of a thinking about the kind of mythology about race that we hear in the late 19th century and the whole lynching phenomenon of the late 1890s, for example, is that there was some concern. Or well, let me back up and say in the in the 1890s, black men were routinely lynched in the American South because of the idea that they were threatening to white women or they were flirting with white women and, and that this was uh, standard Practice and something to be feared. And, and in fact, many white women were left alone with slaves during the Civil War, including male slaves on their property. And there's just no known incident of slave men attacking their mistresses, (laughs) raping their mistresses during the Civil War. But so it's interesting that this becomes a myth later on in the century to justify, you know, this horrible treatment of of black men, when in fact, when they really had the opportunity, and you'd think the pent-up rage of hundreds of years of slavery might provoke that kind of behavior. It, It didn't. And black soldiers didn't behave that way either when they went down to the South. I mean, obviously the war wasn't as disruptive for women in the North, only because the war didn't happen there, except when it, you know, the couple times it got a little bit close. Um it was disruptive in the sense that everybody experienced the death and, and you know, the loss that the war brought um, to their families. But in terms of their way of life, their property, uh, and, and so on, it it didn't have the same effects at all, which helped them to get up and, you know, keep moving later on and turn right back to, you know, women's rights activism and so on.
0: So, and I guess kind of very broad as well, after the Civil War was over. Uh, There was, you know, huge political change in the States. Um, But what were the effects on women and their rights and kind of, I guess, their way of life?
2: Well, I think for women who say women in the North, white women in the North who had been involved in women's rights activity, that resumed. And of course, they also uh, reinvested in the temperance movement, which in fact was a much bigger movement than the women's rights movement. Temperance was huge long before women's rights was, was big. I think many women were disappointed in the North who had been involved in women's rights activism before the war and then had done significant things for the nation state during the war. They were disappointed that things didn't get better and that they didn't get the rights that they felt that they deserved. You know, some women thought, "Well, suffrage is right around the corner now," but that wasn't true. The the Congress um at, you know, in the years after the war was much more concerned with what to do about the freed slaves and how to empower them to protect themselves and how to guarantee, you know, to give them the Standing in men, the standing as citizens that would allow them to protect their communities, and also, of course, tie them to the Republican Party. So when push came to shove, it was black men who got the vote, and not white women, which embittered a lot of white uh, northern northern women. But they they became, you know, they reinvested in in the activism they'd been involved in, and they also. You know, schools began to open up. Some of the great women's colleges began to open up. Some of the first actual professional nursing programs began to open up, which I think is directly tied to women's involvement in nursing work during the war. Um, For black women, I would say, you know, the key issues, as I think I already said, were issues of race uplift and helping the former slaves, if they were women in the North, and for the former slaves, how doing self-help. Uh, so there was a lot of race-based um, uh, activism that was going on, but that wasn't really tied to things like suffrage. It was tied, I mean, except in as much as, you know, the community should have the vote. As opposed to women need to have the vote. Blacks need to have the vote was, and, and, education and so on. There wasn't this sort of, this is what we black women need. That doesn't come so much until, uh, much later, really, I would say. Uh, for planter class women and actually for a lot of poor white women in the, in the South, I think the, the bitterness and the resentment is just so great and the, the defeat is so, Distressing and everything they've lost is so you know so distressing, their focus is on trying to understand what happened, trying to memorialize the dead um, and find some way to make something good out of this horrible catastrophe that has befallen the south and the failure you know to become independent and to to win this war so there and and every time you know even the when when women up north are saying we need to have a suffrage amendment women in the south white women in the south all they can hear is oh yet again the federal government wants to tell us what to do <laughs> you know it just doesn't it doesn't resonate as like this is good for women it all they hear is oh more of the federal government intruding on our affairs first they freed our slaves then they gave those terrible people, the vote, you know, black men, the vote and citizenship. And now they, you know, now they want to intrude again. So uh, the South remains very distant from the white South remains very distant from the suffrage movement until the 20th century. And they just try to heal their heal their wounds and memorialize their dead for a long time and sort of struggle back.
0: Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Yeah, it is. And join
2: white supremacist organizations.
0: I mean, the KKK was
2: was big for everybody, not just for
0: men. Well, I don't know about you, but I had no idea pension records could be so fascinating. I can't thank Elizabeth enough for such an interesting and enlightening interview about women in the Civil War. As well, thanks to Omar al for finding time for an interview just at the start of his book tour. American War is still definitely at the top of my list of books to read this year. It's so sad, but it's worth the heartache. You can find links to both Omar and Elizabeth's work in the show notes. Thanks for joining me for another science fiction double feature. Next month, I'll be talking to Yoon Ha Lee about his second book in the Machineries of Empire series, Raven Stratagem. If you enjoy vast space operas and clever characters, this is the series for you. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today. So read wisely. Thanks for listening.